dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're here to talk about the third episode of the third season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This episode is called Useful. What do you feel like useful means, Paul? useful, if you didn't even know what the word meant, you might just notice that they used the word, I don't know, like eight or 10 times in this episode. Yeah, that and useless. Right. You either useful or useless. I was taught in elementary school that you can't really define a word by using the word to define it. So you can't say of use (laughs) to say useful. Okay. So let's say. When I looked it up, it was more like being able to add value in some way to someone else's life. That is in some way being useful. So getting someone a drink of water or going and helping someone out, you're being useful in some way. Okay. So someone that say stays home and plays video games, are they useful? I don't know. (laughs) Are they teaching someone else how to play the game? No, they're just <laughs> poning noobs. Poning noobs. Oh my God. I, You know what? I would say by Lawrence's definition, I'm going to say they are not useful because they're not contributing to society. However, by humanity's like larger definition, and this is a big part of this episode, is what makes someone a useful quote unquote individual or someone of value to society. I think that most of us come at people and looking at the way people are as like we all have in some inherent good to add to society, even just being ourselves, right? Our mm-hmm. our wonderful, fascinating selves, right? And like in this world, we're all taught like there's only one you. You're important in this world. That's how we're supposed to feel. But whether if you really took back like several steps and looked at it extremely objectively and was just sort of like, hmm, I don't really know that that person really is contributing to society. I suppose you could start scrutinizing individuals. How would those noobs learn unless they get pwned? (laughs) I don't know, noobs. If you're out there and you'd like to speak (laughs) up to that, y'all feel free. I don't want there to be any confusion. This is not some sort of inside joke. Caroline does not have an issue with people sitting around playing video games. I could care less. The way I live my little life is like, I don't judge anybody. I I assume that if you are doing something like that, that is not contributing to society by someone's standards, then you're just wasting your own life. But like the only person who loses in that situation is you, you know, it's your life. And if that's how you spent it and it is valued at not important, then you're the only one that lost really, you know, I guess if you look at it, though, from someone like Lawrence's point of view, where you're like this architect of an entire society, then it is extremely important that everybody's pulling their weight and everybody has, you know, a job and you're fulfilling a need because otherwise you're just zapping resources from someone who could be contributing to society. That did come up in this episode in one way or another. It does. And so I guess so it just depends on who you are in the mix, right? If if you're somebody who's got to look out for everybody, then you do kind of have to have some amount of of place some value on each person, which is terrible. (laughs) And even Lawrence himself balks at that idea when he says like the moral stain line and he's like, which is dumb because 
who is who is anybody to judge the morality of someone else? It's like he he's like living a contradiction and he and he seems to just thrive on it, you know, just like he says one thing, does another, needs it to be a certain way, but is okay with not doing it that way. It's like he's he's a complicated guy. He is a complicated guy, but I will challenge the idea that he is contradictory. I think that for the most part, he actually lives his truth all the time. It's just that we view his truth in different ways in different scenes. And so then he surprises us when he does something different than we expect. But if you really just look at what he does, he's told you the whole time who he is and what he's doing. And he's never once tried to act like he's somebody he's not. And when you ask, like, why are you doing it this way? He, he gave a reason for the different things. He, he wasn't actually hypocritical of the situation. So I don't know, Paul. I'm willing to I'm willing to discuss different examples. Let's talk about one huge concept that's in this, which is the culture of women. And most importantly, women having to deal with or interacting with men. Do you think this is a mm, meant to inform viewer women on how they might look at their own relationships with men? Or is this just in this extreme case where men have decided to subjugate women so totally that they have to look at this this way in order to just survive? I will say that in real world, not Gilead, that I think this is more about strength in numbers. When we are individually cast against men, we stick towards the initial observation that June makes in this episode, which is we observe men to avoid trouble. As individual women, when we are working only alone, that is exactly how I interact with all men. I am sizing up the situation. I'm deciding moment by moment, am I safe? Is this guy somebody I can trust to be around me or my children? Is this man at the door that I'm about to answer going to rush me at the door? Or is he going to stay out on the sidewalk? I am moment by moment deciding and trying to avoid trouble. However, when I am out in the world with a group of women and I know that we all have each other's back and we are working together very much on the same mission for things, whether it's in a business sense, whether it's in a social sense, I have a completely different attitude where I'm not nervous about the man doing something because I feel the strength in numbers. In fact, I'm going to be observing in order to be creating a problem for him in some way. I'm looking for the weak point to be able to take advantage of the situation. But that is a difference for me of numbers. We've talked about this before, not on the podcast, but as a man, it's a shame that this is the way that, I mean, this is totally different than the way men look at interacting with women. So it's, it's interesting. It would be interesting if there was another woman on the panel here to, to (laughs) confirm or or give you another perspective on that. Cause I can't, I can't even pretend. I mean, what I see just bopping around the world as me is I don't have to deal with people that way. It's super interesting. We have, however, talked about this around like Sunday dinner table, like a multi-generational dinner table. I know that you have been sitting there when like I will ask my 70-year-old mom or my 25-year-old cousin or whatever, and we will go around the table and I will be like, when you're walking in a parking garage to your car, you do what? And they will say the same thing every time. My head's on a swivel. I have my keys in my hand. I'm like staring, looking. I'm waiting, watching for every little movement anywhere like... If, or if a man approaches me, what's like the first thing you do? You're like immediately sizing them up, maybe even take a step back, trying to look around the room and make sure you like know your escape route if something goes awry. You've heard other women say that at those dinner tables. I've actually, you know, what was it? Like an SNL song or, or joke or TV? Like, yeah, they were, uh, yeah. Where they're basically making light 
of the idea that women live in fear of just a man reaching across the table and just choking the life out of them because their hands and arms are strong enough to do that. It doesn't even have to be a significant man. Just any old man can do that. And they made it a joke because it was just so widely understood that they'd get a laugh that would be like kind of an uncomfortable laugh because it's not funny to kill people. Well, But I, but it's understood enough that it's like, hey, everybody else in the room thinks the same thing. <laughs> like that. No, no, I that, think you're, I, I, okay, I'm going to say that Saturday Night Live, generally speaking, brings up real life issues in a skit form. It's not meant to be a joke. It's meant to be presenting it in a way that's non-threatening to you, man, because we get it. I get it. And I'm not even offended about them singing about it because no, that's like fact. But they have to make light of it or else they might offend you, the man. Oh. So they're not making a joke of it. They're trying to say, do you are you even aware that we are scared the shit out of you? And that you guys seem to us as extremely moody and volatile and you go off like in a rage. Like, what? are y'all even aware of that? And then yes, maybe they're singing and dancing about it, but it's not a joke. It's just... They have to present it in a way that's non-threatening. That's women in a nutshell. Every way we talk with you guys, we have to do it in a non-threatening manner. I cannot come toe-to-toe -to -toe with you. If you step up to me, I need to take half a step back. Because if I don't, you are physically stronger than me. And if I don't, and I don't like yield some space, then... I'm already at a disadvantage. So there's a ton of things we all do. If I'm walking on a sidewalk or whatever, like I give like a wide berth. I, you know, I, I do a million things. I'm the one that'll cross the street if a man is coming towards me that I'm nervous about. He, he certainly isn't going to cross the street because he's scared about me. Yeah. That's just everyday life. That just is what it is. So this culture of women, I appreciated the concept of alone. We're basically sitting ducks and we have to constantly be be observing men only to avoid trouble versus if we would work together, we could observe men, compare notes, and essentially find their weaknesses and prevail. So go girls. <laughs> I'm for it. I find myself doing that 100%. 100%. Yay. <laughs> it's true. If I am with all my other friends there, uh, or in any situation where I'm positive another woman's going to back me, then all of my energy that was going towards watching for trouble can actually turn towards making some sort of positive step for whatever it is I am looking to happen. I don't like to go around thinking the way that they are about how women are going to become men's nightmare. I think it's because what we're going to find out is women being in charge or in any way having freedom is the man's nightmare. <laughs> so in that regard, then yes, we are going to become their nightmare. But I don't I don't take it like we're after you, like we're trying to hurt you, just like we're going to stop taking that half step back at some point. That seems fair. I hope it does because I think it's, I hope it's coming. You know, I would like to think it is. Let's talk about a woman who had a major journey in this episode. You must be talking about Serena. I am. We were talking a lot in our last episode about how they were going to handle the narration moving forward. Like, how are we going to find these individual stories within this larger story? I was happy to see that Serena has her own voice now. Like, she's allowed to carry her own storyline, not in conjunction with Fred and not in conjunction with June, but just herself. We can watch her just sitting on a log at her mom's house, smoking and thinking. Yeah. So to catch up, it would look, it would seem that she has taken a walkabout from Fred and, and has gone to stay at her mom's house on a coast. I was guessing maybe Maine, 
since it looked so rough out there, but I don't really know. So this whole time, she's just sort of thinking and thinking about, knowing her background, she must be thinking a lot, like, what did I get myself into? There's the and there's also this, the daughter stuff, you know, she didn't have her daughter very long, but that uh, connection, it's like her heart doesn't really seem to know what to do with it because she doesn't want to let it go. But like when her mom throws in her face with such cruelty about, about A, you gave her away and B, she wasn't even yours. It was like, no, she felt like she was, it was hers, I, I think. Even though she, you know, intellectually, she knows she didn't give birth to that child, but still, yeah, she has all that stuff to kind of, that's, that's weighing on her. What did you think was running through her mind? Those scenes definitely had that feel that I know I've said where like, sometimes you need to like go look at the ocean and just like feel small and like recognize that there's like a bigger world out there and there's more going on than just in your own head. Yeah, she was trying to figure out where she fits in in the world. Throughout the entire time with her mom, between Rita giving her the 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 really beautifully crafted leather finger uh, apparently Rita had made that was very very well made for her to the 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 dress fitting and her trying to sort of assimilate into that prayer circle. Um she she was trying to find her place, you know, like like the dress fit but it sort of didn't fit yeah there was there was a whole trying to pick up her life where it left off exactly and i think that that's like a perfect way to describe both the dress that wasn't exactly the same kind of dress like i noticed um when she was actually walking into the water at the you know the end of her little journey here um it had like this like these like sheer panels that were coming off of it that were like nothing like she wore um but they were like lighter and airier um than the dress she wore previous and then of course the prosthetic finger you know this representative you know going back the way it was before but like obviously mangled you know yeah and her choosing to take that off and leaving it there what did you feel like that represented for her that scene when she leaves the the finger on the on the log when she goes out in the water i'm not always a champion at, at reading these um moments of symbolism in entertainment but that one didn't escape me i'm pretty sure that was a baptism even though she didn't go under the water it was still a cleansing especially the way you know she had gotten the the talking to from her mom which i think we're going to cover in a second but the talking to from her mom about you have no place in this world without being by Fred's side, essentially. And she comes out of the water and just stomps right by Fred. Like, no, she's she's willing to find a path that doesn't involve him. She may need to use him, but they're not going to be walking lockstep anymore. That also includes only having nine and a half fingers. So there's Serena that came out of the water. I think old Serena died. New Serena came out of the water. I agree completely. And and I, I very much respect this whole idea of her going back to the mom's house and sort of trying to find her way, realizing that she can't go back to who she was before, even before Fred, right? She can't do like a pre- married version of Serena because she can't she hasn't fit in in her mom's world yet you're right walking past Fred it's like I also don't fit in as like married Fred's wife here it's something that I talked about a lot when I was in college this idea of I always feel so weird that for my own self that I either lived with my with my father's name as like my maiden name or once I got married I get my husband's name but at like no point in time do I just have my name I found that so crazy when I was like 17 I would be like I don't really feel comfortable with this like how come like at what point am I just Caroline how do I ever be that and I and I understood that concept I think at 17 that's pretty darn young to really understand what Serena was going through 
right then, that same moment of like, how the hell do I not be Mrs. Waterford and and not be Pamela's daughter, but just be Serena? Like, where? how can I fit in the world? Where do I fit in? I don't know where she will fit in Gilead. I mean, the reality is that Pamela's words were not wrong when she says, you have no place without being Fred's wife. That's that's honest. I think like what you're talking about of fitting in Gilead, I think like what I said earlier, she is going to be undercover. She's going to operate by day as Fred's wife, but I, you know, by night where her passion is, <laughs> is going to be something else. I agree because ultimately I think June couldn't just take off the handmaid's outfit and walk through the, you know, the blue collar, gray collar area as June. She still has to put on another costume and go through as like a Martha. It's the same thing. Like Serena can want to not be, you know, Mrs. Waterford, but the reality is, is like in this world, you got to be wearing a costume. So you just got to pick one. Which dress are you going to wear to be able to get to the next place and be able to survive another day? Did something about Serena's mom remind you of Emily Gilmore on her hardest days when she gave Laura, um, when she gave Lorelai like no quarter, she said like the, the harshest things possible, but something about that New England DAR type society woman kind of thing. That's who her mom seemed to be, even though Gilead shouldn't really have those things. Somehow they still had those things. I think, yes, for those of you guys who watched Gilmore Girls, you, you know what he's talking about. But I also think that that just the concept of especially an older woman who has lived life and who has had a lot of experience being a woman and being in a man's world. At some point in time, you may feel the need to grab the shoulders of a younger woman and say, listen to me, this is the way it is. And if you do not step in line with the rest of us, you are going to get hurt point blank. And so I think that a lot of like that Emily Gilmore, like this is protocol and this is the way things are done is a lot about like previous experience with truly safety and being able to get along in the world. Like if you continue to buck the system, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb and you're going to be hurt. It's like the reverse. How of, I take uh, it. Remember the leftovers, Kevin Sr. to Kevin Jr. Cut the shit. When he's telling him, when Kevin Kevin Jr.'s like, is this all there is to life? Because he's kind of wanting to sow his wild oats a little bit. And his dad's like, settle the fuck down. Cut the shit. It's kind of the same thing, right? It's just not as, uh, it's it's uh, it's more polite. Yeah. And, it, and, and I think the message is the same. One person isn't going to change society. So you better color within the lines. Because if you're an outlier, you're going to be cast off by society. And in Gilead, that means you're going to die. In America, current, that might just mean that you're, you, get you know, <laughs> yeah, or you don't, or maybe you don't have friends or you're a social outcast or you, you know, whatever you, you, you do things, you know, in a, in a alone type fashion, there's room for outliers in a place of freedom, but in a place with no freedom, you better like get with the program or, or you're, you're going to be out, you know, and in this case dead. So I, I honestly believe that mom was coming at it from basically the same place, you know, Kevin senior was coming out, which is like, you can't, you cannot be a police officer in this town, be chief of police and, and be questioning existence. Like stop it. You know, yeah. we all need the chief of police to act, you know, very, very, very confident in himself. You cannot act wavering because you're in a place of authority and you cannot act like that. People will not put up with it. You know, the other thing that reminded me of Emily Gilmore was the prayer circle, which 
was more of a faith healing. It kind of was, yeah. Which goes back to what we were saying in the last couple of podcasts about just what is the state of Gilead's medical apparatus? Because this looked like honest to God faith healing. Like there was a very sick woman there. She didn't. And you know that what was odd about the, it seemed like she had, she was losing her hair in a way that would imply chemo or something. But yet we know surely she wasn't getting any type of intervention like that. So I wondered what kind of sickness they were trying to represent by her physical, you know, ailments there, her symptoms. We're not familiar to anything, although we could all identify like she looks sick. But this is like tricking one of the daughters into their debutante ball or something like that. The same kind of thing, but it's Gilead's version, which is, I don't remember the exact plot points, but Emily tricked them. Oh my God. Why do you keep talking about Gilmore Girls? Because that's what what it reminded me of. Okay. That's that's what it reminded me of. Okay. Uh, All right. I'll agree with you that it definitely seemed like some sort of like ceremony that the mother definitely participates in. I think it's something though, again, going back to like the way that people get along. Oh, but she tricked her into it. Like she, and she spilled all those, all the beans about repair your marriage and all this other shit. Like- that was the setup. Let me explain, though, a li- for, a, for a moment, uh, something that I know to be true in my own world. And this may not fly in this exact episode, but I believe it does. Going back to that singular women feel too vulnerable, but a group of women feel strength. The majority of people in that group, minus the actual faith healer man, were women. Why do they do this? Why do they group up for this prayer circle? Why do they do this? Well, I know people who were struggling as young moms who really were floundering, didn't know where to go, didn't know where to get support. And I know individual women who chose to use going to like a Bible study or going to some sort of church related event because they felt supported by other women. They could strap their baby on their chest or whatever and go and have coffee with a group of women. And even if they were talking about the Bible, even if they whatever, the real underlying part of it had to do with fellowship and had to do with feeling a sense of control in a very uncontrollable situation. You know, they had all these kids. They didn't feel like they could speak up at home, you know, whatever. And so in this particular scenario, they had some amount of strength. I think that if you were a woman who is deathly ill like that woman, they wouldn't allow you medicine. The only solace you could get was to go around other women who believed in this and get together and somehow you would feel some amount of strength coming out of it. Whether you believed in the actual ceremony or not didn't really matter, but the gathering of the women and the actual moment there brings a lot of strength to women. Isn't it up to you to spill your own beans? Doesn't it undermine the process? You're not ready to to talk about a given thing, but it's but it's just dumped out there anyway. Well, what, what I prefaced with this was that this is what I know to be going on in my real life. I don't I don't know that it applies directly to this example, but the idea that she was definitely like backdoored into this. I think the mom again was just sort of like hoping that somehow she would feel the camaraderie, feel the 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 support, and somehow gain gain some strength from that. And tried and like overlooked the fact of exactly what you're saying that, but you made her feel betrayed and you made her feel like all of her dirty laundry was paraded around. So now she feels even worse. I think she was hoping 
Let's just forget about that part and let's just hope she feels supported by everyone and somehow is going to gain strength from that. It was a silly choice. It didn't work out clearly. Uh, But I think, you know, moms do stuff like that all the time, too, where they're really hoping it's going to work out. And then you turn around, you go, you told you told him all that, you know, you've seen that, Paul, where like a mom will like give way too much information thinking she's helping. And it's like, oh, mom, that wasn't the right thing. Another TV mom guest star that that is that ruins the life of the, oh, of the main character. I don't see. I don't think it ruined her life. I think what it. I think what it allowed her to understand though is that at the end of the day, even someone who is related to you, like like your mom, if you if you do not have each other's backs, then you are not an ally. The mom revealing all these secrets in a way that was done, you know, behind her back. She wasn't even aware that all this had been shared with this group. Those types of moves undermines women's relationships all the time. Talking behind each other's backs, spreading shit about each other. That's like what breaks up all women alliances. If women wouldn't do that, we would all be a lot stronger. If the mom had allowed Serena to tell her own story or to just be quiet and observe and maybe next week she'd want to be a part of it. But by sort of gossiping behind her back, she wrecked their relationship. How many times does that happen? Millions. All the time. Every day. It's probably happening right now. (laughs) (laughs) I guarantee you it is. So again, just sort of identifying like who's really an ally and who's not mom not in this case pamela has drank the kool-aid and and again is very very sick and tired of the bullshit you know she wants serena to act right we all know how this goes what are the chances that mom is left alive in her house on the coast if serena goes bonkers batshit hmm Good point. There's a fair shot that the whole household gets to be executed. The mom is under these extreme circumstances to get Serena to fall in line as well. So introduced a little bit of a world building question for me. Like, where was dad? And if she's a wife, where's her husband? Super good question. I agree wholeheartedly. It also opened up this question of like, she was talking about the weather and like how extreme it was on the coast. And it's like totally mild in the city. And I was like, I know that we've really only been out to the colonies. And Gilead. So we don't really have like a sense of like, what is the world like, you know, beyond these very controlled situations? And it seems like the weather and everything is very volatile and extreme outside of this very protected fortress. Weird. Yeah, I couldn't tell I mean, where they climate were. change, I guess, right, is mm. what they're trying to tell us. Something that made the colonies uh, assumedly radioactive, right? Mm-hmm. You set off enough of those and you do put enough shit up in the atmosphere that it does change the amount of sun that hits the earth you know so it does change it does change things it 100 percent makes me wonder about what they're doing in gilead though to get good weather like a very curious cat because i mentioned that too because how much times at the handmaids when they're like we're having good weather today praise be like that kind of crap they say that stuff about the weather and i know that we all chalked it up to like well it's just a nice city but because weather was actually mentioned and they said your weather is different in the city than it is out here i took it to be like huh i wonder if there was like actually any forethought to that like you know something about the weather i don't know i I just had a jeopardy question where they said that putting these big um like solar or or wind powered like windmill type things across africa could bring literally the rain to africa by changing the courses of like the the wind patterns and such and so i was thinking wow i wonder if it's possible uh to bless the rains down in africa Africa. that was actually part of the clue it was like 
Toto said, well, like that was like part of it. And I was like, I know rain in Africa. <laughs> like I knew the answer. Thanks Toto because of that. Not because I understood weather patterns and windmills and solar and wind power. Not so much about that. I can't barely even say the words. No. You're like closing your eyes. Like you hurt my head. <laughs> you know who hurts my head? Uh, Friedrich. Fucking Fred. Fucking Fred. Paul, does he not turn out to be the most shallow Lame-ass idiots. Douche nozzle. <laughs> douche. God, not that we didn't think he was a douche, but this like glimpse into like just what a shallow dick he is. He's is like just, the pooba of douches. Oh my God. He wears like a douche as a hat. <laughs> it's awful. So let's get in Fred. Fred comes to the meeting and is instantly manipulated by June. I love a fire lighting June. She's lighting those candles. And I was like, oh, oh, the symbolism as she's walking around lighting the candelabras. Love it. She's she's tricky like that. So he's instantly just like into her, like way back into talking like, hey, girl, how's the Hey, girl, what's up, yo? He tried for a second to be like, you're you're mean to me. And, and he's for like and, no seconds. And yeah, it didn't take much time at all before she could get a little bit of info from him. Uh, to the point where I felt like Lawrence like came bopping in that room like, uh, psh, bring it up, you two. <laughs> right? Oh, that line that he says where he's like, do, do you miss being a Fred? Do you miss that? Uh, that was so gross. It was like Lawrence was going to pull down Fred's pants and be like, you miss this? You miss <laughs> this? And I was going to be like, oh my God. Disgusting. Man, I don't need to see little Fred. Fact. But yeah, I mean that that scene was okay, but the but the gross scene obviously is going to be the the speech he's preparing and the audience for whom he is preparing it in front of. So we always watch with closed caption on. So I knew right away that he was at Jezebel's. Paul did not have on closed caption when he watched. First of all, what did you think about the spiel he was gonna give? Did you think it was pretty good or it was a good spiel. I mean, it was maybe twenty-five percent over the over the sappy line, depending on what kind of mood Serena is in. But knowing the Serena that we know now that he doesn't know, none of his words will have any meaning at all. He can prepare in front of all the whores he wants and it's oh never going to matter. I don't guess that he's ever even going to be able to give this speech. I don't think she's going to give him the opportunity to give this spiel. I think we've heard it now. That's it. He's not going to say it again. Or maybe there'll be a joke moment where he starts to go into the spiel and we'll all recognize, oh, this is the spiel. And she's going to be like, eh, end it, squelch it, not having no, it. She's she's going to go into roommate mode and that's about it. What kind of asshole? First of all, she goes to her mom's house and he lives at a whorehouse. You think, ah! you think he took out a, a room on? Uh... Yes, sir, I do. I think that's where else would he live, Paul? The house is burned down. Hmm. She's, yeah, Rita and Serena are living elsewhere. If Fred had a house, Rita would most certainly be at the house taking care of him cooking. So, no, dude, I think he's fucking taking a room at Jezebel's. My notes. Disgusting. My notes say he's practicing with whore. <laughs> practicing with whore. Yeah, the speech with whore. I didn't so wow. I didn't I didn't see the closed captions say anything about Jezebel's, but I knew Yeah, mine said Jezebel said. <laughs> I knew I knew by the cut of her jib. Oh my god. Also it turns out that he's been demoted. Ah 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 ha. Love it. Uh there was one interesting line out of there world building wise. Uh the commander is the head of the household. We were kind of wondering how the heck could there be all these freaking commanders? How can you have that many hens in the hen house basically? 
uh, of the same rank. And it sounds like it's more of a ceremonial designation for just the man of the house, basically. And the house, we're coming to understand more fully in this season, the household is like a body of family members, but also service people. And that wasn't quite as clear to me, at least, in, oh, the, really? in, in the previous seasons. Well, the commander meant the, the titular head of that body. I thought it had some meaning within their little government. I think that if you're the head of your household, you have some sort of amount of like voting rights in the community. Or like say so in the community. That's like how you get to be there. Because like, you know, Nick's a guy who, you know, was a driver and so was a part of a household, but got like promoted to running his own household. So I, I think that that's the way it had been set up since the beginning for us. But it's kind of like Game of Thrones. They all have very, houses. Very. Yeah. No, I think it's exactly like that. And and I actually think that that's like historically accurate. Like whomever was the head of the house absolutely was the only person who had like voting rights because they were the landowner and whomever the landowner was gets the voting rights, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I think that that's the way that the government seems to work. Like, I don't think that all those commanders have like equal say in any way. I think there's still only a couple of people who are deciding anything right now. It seems to be Lawrence, but I, we know there were other heads like Lawrence wasn't a part of it when they went to that like courtroom council meeting kind of thing. And, you know, that's when they determined to cut off the finger because Serena's little spiel. Like, it's not like Lawrence was sitting in there. There's obviously other higher ups that are running other parts of this operation who's deciding they must have like a military part of it who like is actually heading people out to these different areas. Yeah, but I think that they're like functioning as kind of like how. Ultimately, we have civilians in our government that tell the army where to go. And so they are kind of the Gilead version of that, because that seemed to be what they were they were deciding, pushing further here, doing things, allocating resources there, that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. But I didn't ever hear anybody say, yes, I agree. Or everybody say, I put up your hand. Like, I didn't actually see anybody vote or anybody actually have an input on, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a little like, yes, they gather. Since they came to Lawrence's house, Wait, it seemed on. like how they were coming say- from marching orders, really. Yeah. How do you like, it's not, it's not, I'm trying to try to think they weren't being reported to. It was like, what's the right word? Like they were just being kept up to date, you know, like just, just up to speed as to like what was going on in different areas, but they weren't, they weren't being asked their opinion. Like they weren't going to say, no, I don't agree with going to Chicago. That wasn't going to happen, but it's like, they did need to know what was going to happen because like Nick or like other people might be being sent there. So they're just sort of being kept up to speed. If you think back to the other other times that we've seen groups of commanders, they've been in their voting chamber. And, yeah, more that like kind of courtroom looking and it's setting. Been, right. And it's been very formal looking. It's The lighting has been severe and the men all look... Like politicians. Practically identical. Right. And they all have very hard faces. These are... Although we know in their spare time, like that one guy that got his hands cut off... Um, we know that they're not all uh, pure of heart and spirit, but in that room, they all paint a very disciplined um, and singular picture. Now, think of this episode and the scene in Lawrence's parlor and the men. Doesn't it seem like stylistically, it was played with a lot of whimsy, like a lot of like those men, like with the like with the cigar, yeah, doing the kind of the phallic move in front of the camera. Well, yeah, yeah, and then. Uh, a lot of the other men 
were sort of they're almost like cackling and smearing and yeah if they had mustaches they might have been like a little twisting yeah like it was i think it's because we were seeing the meeting through june's eyes and every other time when we saw a commander meeting we were either seeing it through like fred's eyes or serena's eyes or yeah or more neutral neutral sense and so I think this this was the first time that June was in a commander meeting. So you're right. I think that everything that was happening was absolutely like they were made to look like these fat cat villains. I mean, I don't even think smoking a cigar even makes sense, because if you remember the idea of like smoking that Serena smoked at all was like a huge no-no. And I don't I don't remember that just being a woman thing. I thought that that was like a societal thing having to do with like pollution and health. Remember, we were all drinking these like berry teas and all this kind of stuff. Like I thought they were kind of more holistic people. So the fact that he is like sitting there in Lawrence's house and not in like Jezebel's smoking a cigar, even that seemed very like decadent and like outside of their norm. So yeah, I think it was meant to be played out like this fat cat villainous horrible group because we were seeing it through June's eyes. That's what I'm going with. And some of the men seemed young, kind of young. They for all that seemed position. disgusting, leery, very slick. Very yeah, yes. They seemed more like gangsters than politicians. They didn't look like councilmen. They looked like yeah, like they were doing this like very, uh, very underhanded operation kind of moment, you know. I know a bunch of commanders got blown up last season, but these guys looked gross. All right. So then the bulk of this episode is really tied up between June and Lawrence, even though it seems like we learned a lot about Lawrence. And we did. We have to remember that it was all through June's POV. So far, not to my recollection anyway, has Lawrence been a point of view character. No. So everything that we're getting about him is through either Emily's eyes or now June's eyes. Let's get back to the commander meeting, but now talk about the the June aspects of it. What do you think was going on with that whole book scenario? I think it was a power move on his part to, you know, flex his muscle and to make her aware of how important Lawrence had been in the evolution of Gilead. So by asking her to go to the bookshelf and we took the time to actually sit and like pause the show and really look at the bookshelf. And I'm so glad you like pointed out that they had all of Lawrence's books are up there. So you could see how many books that he had written and it made you so aware of his hand in all of this, even if you hadn't already guessed it before, you know, like he was, he was absolutely shoving it in her face. Literally. He's like, go stand in front of that bookcase. Yeah. You know, and like stare at this. It'd be like a old baseball guy saying, go get my bat off the wall. And you have to walk by all his like trophies on the way to get the bat. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So for you guys who didn't like pause it, there was all these different books like problematic populism during the fertility crisis and the long-term effects on American prosperity. There's another one called Brink of Extinction. Another one for the case of relaunching the mercantile economy in developing nations. I I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but the concept of this, of of the, the collection books here were several several ideas one how religion could basically be used as as being powerful within society like how to manipulate religion to make society form in a certain way and then also there was a whole part about basically the banking system and going back to a more like trade-based economy versus 
stocks and bonds and all the ways that we do business now, which is like really much more digital. It's like way less about I'm going to sell you my hay and you're going to give me a cow. Like going back to that, that's what they mean by the mercantile yeah. system. And one of the books was about um, like that, the end of, of alchemy banking and the future of the global economy. Like basically that, that, that idea that, that banking and finance being like the, the cornerstone of, of these like nations were, was going to go away. And he just wanted to point out to her that, that he was, he was there for all that. Yeah. And, and it helped to solidify our, our idea. We had thought maybe he was a professor, or at least I thought maybe he was a professor, but now it turns out he was an academic and, a, and an author. A professor kind of still fits into that, having written books like that, but definitely a guy that sat around and thought, what ifs? Uh, yeah. I'm a thousand percent still going with this like researcher, this more like a sociology background of uh, the way that he spoke to everybody the entire time. And we really talked a lot about this, this double talk that he had going on the entire time, even when the meeting was about to start and June offers to go answer the door. And he's like, what's the punishment for a handmaid opening a front door? And she like stops in her tracks because it's like, and he's like, really, I don't know what it is, but it's like, that's enough for her to like, not go anywhere near the front door, you know, even though it's just like, he does it in these ways where he's just like posing a question, but it's done in such like an ominous freaky way that makes you stop and think that you're like, you know what? <laughs> I'm just kind of like absorb into the wallpaper right now. Like I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my thought was, is there even a penalty for that? I mean, is, is that against the rules? Well, then that, and that is what made her stop and think. And that is why I missed the books on the bookcase in, entirely, because I was thinking, oh, no, this is setting her up to look like she's reading the names of the books on the bookcase. And I'm so scared that she's going to appear or be accused of reading in some way. That now there's like a trick. Yeah. Yes. That it was a trick. And so I was like, how is she going to get this book? And then also not read, but then also do what he asked. And so when he said it's the one with like the yellow writing on stuff, but then, oh my God. And he's like, good job. The smelling fart face that she made from that point on of like, I can't even make my face look more scowly. Like the disgust that she shows on her face for the rest of the episode is like insanity. Like her face must have hurt after like having to do that huge nostril face. Cause it was like, he was, she was so disgusted by him. He was so nasty. It was a whole thing, you know, like he made her do that. And everyone laughing at her. She had to. So humiliating. She had to basically play along, but she had to read the words in her own head and then bring it back. But then also act like you're not reading the words in your head. Like you have to stay there and just stay in there as if you can't read. And they all have to just go along with it. Like, we just know that you read. We know it's against the rules. And here's the thing. We don't actually care, you know? And it's like, ah, like we're all, we're all just, I know we're all just playing. We're all just playing. And then it's only because you're making us play this stupid game that we have to do it. Yeah. And I don't know. See, these men are, have their heads so far up their ass that when you say, we all know you read it, 
I don't know if I don't know that that is true. I think that when the book he, was underneath another book. He didn't he, describe it like that. He said it's the one with the yellow writing, and it was the only one with yellow writing. And so all she had to do was identify the color ah, and be able to pick it up. But okay. but that gave her the out to actually reach her hand up and get it because otherwise there was no way to reach your hand up and get it because you can't act like you read the words. So that's where I'm saying like, I wonder how embedded they are. Like, do they think she read or do they believe that by saying it's the yellow writing, that's how she picked the book? It's a curiosity to me. Like, I don't know what they thought. They're so weird, you know? Yes. I don't know. Another huge thing that comes out of that commander meeting was this huge question that he puts forward. Like, trying to figure out the value of an individual, right? Yeah, that's a- This whole concept of like, there's all this female shipment coming in from Chicago. There's going to be this salvaging. And that means going through these files and figuring out who is worthy of being a part of Gilead, essentially. And he puts that to her, like, what is the value of a person? What do you think, Paul? Like what, I know we kind of joked about this at the very beginning of this podcast of like, is somebody who plays video games all day? Is that person valuable? Do you agree with what he was kind of putting forth to June? This idea that how do you, how do you decide who's valuable and who's not? I mean, there's the Mr. Rogers sense of value, which is everybody's valuable, but then there's kind of the, the space station only has 200 slots on it kind of value or the, the, the zombie refuge only has enough room for 50 people in it kind of value. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in those cases, if I'm going to a zombie refuge and I'm walking in next to a farmer and it's me, Paul, the podcaster who knows how to make e-learning, they're going to pick the farmer and not me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. That's the value in those kinds of states of emergency. Now, is Gilead in that kind of state? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think that they basically, when you talk about the, going back to the mercantile economy, getting away from everything like that most of us do, no computers, no, you know, none of that work would matter, you know, nothing having to do with any of that. We're going back to basics, back to who could, like, we're talking food, shelter, clothing, you know, basic stuff. Yeah, it really has to do with, like, your input has to be equal to the amount of resources you use up. I feel like it's that simple. So if you use more resources than you can add to the society, you are not valuable enough to be here. And whether those, um, that contribution is in ideas in leadership, in actual making of a product, however you're doing it, it has to be more than the food you eat, the air you breathe, you know, the space you take up in the house. And you know what? That's like real. I mean, that's like, think back to like when people had like 11 kids, you know, and like X amount survived and stuff. It was like, at the end of the day, we just need X amount of manpower and you can't, you can't eat more than you help bring in from the farm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like, that's like the whole equation. It's not that crazy. It just feels very antiquated. We put a higher value on life than when you had 11 kids and just hoped like one or two survived because we do have better medical and stuff. But then that's how Gilead set it up. What if you don't have medical? What if you don't do that? Well, we get back to just how much can you contribute? Talking about contributions now, moving on to the office scene. Did you think that June really miscalculated how much she thought she was going to be able to wow Commander Lawrence with 
all that she could contribute to his little life there. Severely miscalculated. I mean, she was just playing the, she did exactly what Lawrence accused her of using her, her, her body to try to get her away. He saw through it instantaneously, especially with like leaning in and putting her little head up and all that stuff for like, if a kiss happens, it happens. Like you're, uh, you're barking up the way wrong tree here. Did you expect it to go that way? I mean, when he kind of breathed heavy and said, I bet you're good at intimacy, and they both stood there for a minute, didn't you think he was gonna kiss her? I did for a minute. But, so but, then but it he did not he didn't he didn't really lean in or anything he like that. He kind of closed his eyes though. He 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 did close his eyes. And but when he opened it back up, he's like, I can't believe this worked on Fred. You know, so I don't know if he was lulled in at all. And then thought better of it, or if he was never lulled in. No, I think he, the kind of game that this guy would play would go like, let's let you think you're getting somewhere and then make it very clear that you were never getting anywhere. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Bring you to the brink and then being like, not so fast. Yes. Completely agree. I felt like that conversation where he said, I don't get women. I don't understand how they don't want to be basically um, thought of as just like a body objectified, but yet they use their body to try to manipulate men. And she's like, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just that men are so freaking distractible that they're just like boobs and butts. Okay. And like that we didn't have that intent at all. She did that night though. I mean, that's... That's a, that's she a, didn't have any boobs or butts out. Well, of course, because <sighs> but I mean, she tried her best. I mean, it, she wasn't. Well, what did you think though? Do you think that it's true? Do you think that women use their bodies exclusively for to try to, to try to get ahead in some way or to try to get, manipulate men, or do you think it's just that men look at that first and they don't even pay attention that there was like witty banter and thoughtful other stuff going on? I believe there are those that do, but I have you seen anything in your sphere of influence of women that I don't know how this would really work because you mostly hang around with other women, but <laughs> but I mean, is there anything that that from your experience that that jives with with that idea? I think that he is misunderstanding what is going on there. I think that men respond to that. So I think that if women do that in any way, it's because that's the way to get that person's particular attention. It's like anyone else. If you're going up to a child and you know they like Scooby-Doo, then the first thing you do is start talking about Scooby-Doo, right? And so if you're walking up to a man and he's already ogling your body, then you might be like, okay, like lean in a little or whatever, only just because like it's already an in, like there's, there's already a way to do that. I feel like most of the people that I hang out with, we all start off with witty conversation and we all start off by, by being silly and sassy and making comments, you know, it inevitably ends up where there's like some looking at your body, but that's men. I feel like on the flip side, like, do I feel like women are looking at men? Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, right, we're all supposed to be like procreating. So there's like some part where you're like eyeing up a mate in some way, you know, and that's just like part of how men and women interact with each other. It's not necessarily like evil or bad. It just is what it is. You yeah, know, but I mean, like at work, men wear suits, right? Do uh, they? No, but just, just, <laughs> just, but in, in just just they it's a kind of suit it's dockers and a and a and a, a button-down shirt 
That's it. That's the suit, right? Lucky, now, lucky you guys. Now, women have all these variations that they can wear that, that vary like lengths and tightnesses and openings and all this other kinds of stuff. Okay. I believe what he's talking about is those, that there are those women that select the ones that have all the openings and all the shortnesses and all the tightenings. And they're like, I don't know, maybe they find that they have that in that you're talking about more often than those that, that I don't know, don't. I would say that for my own self that I've never been the girl to wear all the openings. And so <laughs> then in that case, again, like at the beginning when you said, I wish there was another woman on the panel who could like say something. Me too. Cause I, at the, I, I don't know what to tell you about the, that woman, except to say, if that's the way that her body feels comfortable and she chooses to wear that because she's comfortable in that outfit, then, you know, that's why she chose it. Women dress for other women 90% of the time. I mean, you know that. If we go somewhere, I'm I'm not dressing for, for men and I'm likely not even dressing for you. I'm dressing because I don't want to look embarrassed in front of other women who like might be judging me and thinking I'm not wearing a cool enough outfit or I don't look great in it or whatever. I, I'm, I'm really not dressing for men. You know that to be true. Yeah, but you're not trying to get ahead of anything. I'm talking about in a business or other kind of sense where there is some need to prove yourself, get ahead, you know, make your mark, blah, 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 all those different things. And I think that's what he's talking about. Not like social banter kind of things, but, but like improving status kinds of things. And that's where he's saying women use that. I would very much just invite our listeners to give some two cents on that. Like, feel free to comment back on that about like, do you guys feel that way? Do you feel like that, you know, women in the office tend to use their bodies to get ahead? Or do you find that most women try to have good ideas and speak up and it turns out that men don't listen. And so maybe they feel like they have to unbutton a button so that someone will listen to them. But it really isn't about their boobs. It really was about their idea. It's just their boobs got them in the door. And so maybe they actually did have ideas. At the end of the day, you still have to produce the idea. Like if you're in business, you still have to produce the work. So you can have the best ass and the best hits in the whole fucking world. And you can get up the ladder like that. But at the end of the day, if you're the CEO with like a Barbie body, but you can't do the job, you're still going to be fired. Don't know that it really works that way. If it appears that way, I think you just maybe don't know why she's doing it, but I don't, I think she's got to have a brain to back it up at the end of the day. Okay. So let's talk about this whole concept of all these files that Lawrence has on people down to knowing that June didn't pick Hannah up at school when Hannah was sick. A lot of the stuff what? that he, that he threw at her face s sounded documentable, you know, except that one just really stuck out at me. That was such minutia. That was like, wait, what? That was something they just showed us in like a flashback. But that wasn't something anyone made a file out of, you know? I don't know. That's where it's this big fat question of like, clearly there's a network of people who are collecting information at a level we have not appreciated yet. Because if that level of information on a rando Tuesday, you didn't pick your kid up from school, who would be documenting information in a way that that would be getting to him now. But here's the thing. If you recall, that was a small thing. Now I'm really thinking about it. 
didn't like some version of like CPS come out because of that? And they had to actually be like, uh, we've got this. It's okay. Do you remember? There was like uh, someone yeah. they had to answer to right? because they didn't pick their kid up right away. And so I That's guess in that right. way, so it was there would have been a government piece of paper somewhere. So Because kids were so rare that you couldn't fuck around with them like, like you can now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that it wouldn't go unnoticed. Right. Anybody not being taken care of, or a sick child generally, probably got a lot of notice, right? Anybody who's sick yeah. was probably being watched extra carefully. So if you came to the school nurse, that was probably like a, uh-oh, you know? And then if you have a parent who doesn't show up, it's like, call the authorities, you know? So I guess that's where that, that little bit of minutia came from, but it still wigs me out. Like, it still makes me feel like that is some well-documented stuff that now there would not be government paperwork except for a marriage license and a divorce decree on her relationship with Luke. So like the fact that they were dating before that wouldn't have been a government documented piece of paper, you know, like there's something that's more kind of depends like when, um, and maybe Hannah adultery was, was listed on the divorce decree. Maybe, that would have been a government paper. Maybe that could do it. Or, when she was born versus when they were married, you know, that sort of thing. Like, and when the divorce happened versus when they were married and all that kind of stuff. If those dates were really tight, then it would definitely mean that they were dating before he was divorced and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. I, still, that's a great deal of detail work to be reading about individual people. I don't know. I, I, I find it fascinating and it really made me realize like how much more detail oriented this stuff was, this really wasn't capturing people in the woods at all. This was targeting individual, very specific people, not just people who had kids, but like having this detailed file on them the whole time was like, wow, that's, that's a lot. Were you surprised at the reason that was revealed that Emily got to leave? Very much. I the way that he used the word unnaturally is probably the most telling part of the of that the reason. The devil talk. Talk about that. Because it implies like either people or women. I think women. But most likely women have a natural range of intelligence and they're fine to just stick around here spoon the fresh strawberries into his cereal while he's eating it like uh, Sienna was doing that morning. But if you fall outside the range on the high end, then you're not going to get a chance to make your contribution making my cereal here. You, you're better off doing other things. And so it's okay that I, that you, that, that you're set free. I was pretty, pretty interested in that reason. I still feel okay with the idea that I put forth before in the previous podcast that like you really can't have somebody who's such an outlier stay within the society. Um, he did say like, you know, you got to let the rabble rousers let, let out steam every once in a while, that kind of thing. Understood that. But more than that, like when you have somebody who's so different than everyone else and doesn't fit the mold you it can't work in Gilead. So you like have to let them out. What was surprising was that he didn't just choose to execute her, that he does have some bizarre, larger sense of like greater good for the world that he let her go back out. That's where it's like, I know you called it hypocritical, but I think it's, it, it's complicated, but I don't know that it's hypocritical. I do think he still thinks he's doing good for the entire world. 
even though Gilead is like this tiny little microcosm, it's like letting Emily out actually proves that he's not really a hypocrite. It's like he's got this sense that the whole planet needs to be better off. He's just doing his own project right now. Mm -hmm. So it's not really about individuals. It's about this like greater good. Okay. Now, speaking of greater good, not about the individuals. What the fuck with this woman warehouse scene? What was this whole test? I had trouble with this scene. It was... First, the idea that none of these women could be salvaged, meaning converted from former Americans into current Gilead residents, that was just troubling. Like they were just like going to throw the baby out with with the bathwater, basically, and just be like, well, we got Chicago, but we don't we don't need any of the people. I guess. Which is curious why. Like, they never gave us a reason why. They didn't say Chicago was a heavily polluted city and everyone was sick or, or none of these were capable of having children. Like, they didn't say anything. Like, none of them could be handmaids either. None of them could be anything. Like, I, I'm very curious as to why no one was salvageable. I, I can't tell you. I wonder if they will. Do you think they will? Maybe in a very, like, offhanded one-liner. The way that Lawrence treats... June, like I said last time on the podcast, uh, how I how it seems like he's he's trying to teach her something, see if she is teachable, and then teach her something. So this seemed like like a lesson to me. How he said, "I guess you're useful after all." After she did pick, eventually, kind of the same thing a very hard teacher might say after you after you pass a a, a kind of an abstract lesson that you weren't expected to to pass. What is it that he's trying to teach her? I'm not exactly sure because his speech in the rest of the office makes it sound like he has died in the wool, believes his own bullshit, and that Gilead is is the way home, basically. And what is he trying to quote unquote teach this woman to do if women have no status in this in this world that he's he's trying to to perfect? I think that what he's trying to do is what we were saying right before this section, which is you have to think about the greater good and not the individual. We can't save everybody. We just, we can't. So I need you to pick five people who can best do the job. And even though that's hard to do because you know all these other people are going to die, the reality is if you don't choose five people, everyone's going to die. So it's a hard decision to make, but you have to start wrapping your brain around. We have X amount of resources, five spots. That's it. You can choose to kill everyone or you can say, let me go through these files. Let me find the absolute best fit of the best people who can bring the biggest contribution to this society and bring those five people into our society. But he kind of knows that his Martha is running the Underground Railroad and he seems really smart. So couldn't he have maybe made the leap that June was going to do what she did. She was going to use this opportunity. Like he, in fact, gave her the opportunity to choose women that would perfectly fit the resistance. Well, but here's the thing. I think that if anything is his Achilles heel, I would, I think it's probably underestimating women. I mean, he said, you're not smart enough to handle any of this. And he was basically chalking it up to her like weak heart and not being smart enough to see the bigger picture that she wouldn't ever choose anybody. Like, I think he was absolutely 100% banking on her not choosing anyone. That's what I think. I don't think he thought she would ultimately choose anybody. But I think he was trying to say, like, look, if you really, if you really want to have a say, 
and how this all goes, including, let's say, the resistance, you have to put your skin in the game. You've got to make decisions, too. You can't sit back here and say, you know, all y'all are responsible for this. All you guys are doing it. Like, you've got to get in here and you've got to make some decisions that are now your responsibility. If these women come in here and they all get killed, that's on you, June. You picked them. So I think there's some part of him that is okay with allowing the game to play out. Like, I think that that there's this sense that like Lawrence only wants it to go one way. And I don't know that that's true. Like, I feel like he is putting people in place, but there is a part of him that actually is very fascinated by how the game plays out. And he doesn't necessarily have to always know the outcome. Like where he'll say to her, he'll be like, well, what happens if you do this? Well, why do you do that? When he said it's, it's, um, it's tempting for you to try to put, you know, humanity in everyone basically. Right. Yeah. Like, and that is the same kind of like lesson you were trying to say about, like, you are trying to paint everyone with the same brush, June. You think everybody inherently has value to life, but if you think of it on the in the greater scale, no, there's going to be people who are just sucking resources away and going to be people who are hurting other people. You are you're coming at it from the wrong point of view. So when he asks her to make a pick, it's almost like, OK, using your POV, June, let's see who you would choose. I did think it was interesting and a little like give me the willies when he's like, I only have five spots because I didn't really get it till I rethought about the whole episode. Oh yeah, there's only five spots because there was five hanging Marthas at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, so really there is some sort of ratio numbers of like this amount of people, this amount of resources, this is all we can handle, period. Like we cannot bring all these people in. That, you know, that makes a kind of a lot of sense because like the unpeople, the the gray class of people Mm -hmm. we've only seen a little bit of right yeah and they're still confusing to me how they like go to worship and stuff we've never actually seen something like a mob a crowd a traffic jam like the area seems really underpopulated for how much infrastructure was left over from when they took the place over you know what I mean? I agree with you. I also think, though, that they have very limited resources. Like they were they were really working hard to try to work on those trade agreements because they can't bring things in or send things out unless they have trade partners. Yeah. And they have a lot of nuked farmland from what I understand. Right. And so there's only X amount of clean water, food, you know, housing, whatever. Although housing is kind of a joke. There's certainly plenty of housing, but electricity, certainly, or other things, you know. Yeah. So... I mean, again, like, it's like, there's no part of you that wants to understand Gilead because that that seems so disgusting and so awful. Like, it's like, I don't ever want to get that, you know? Yeah. But when he says, I've got five spots and you can choose five people and they're either all going to die or all but five are going to die. So what are you going to do? The rules of the game are clear, you know? It's like, you may not want to be playing the game. We can all say that this game shouldn't exist but if it does how do you play i thought her choice were very interesting those those particular five women very interesting right yeah do you remember who she chooses let's see it was a an engineer an it tech a lawyer somebody and a thief a journalist a journalist Hmm. which the journalist thing i think is interesting because they would be so fresh on the scene, they would have some really new information to be able to share. Because like however long we were deciding June's been in there, like a couple years, 
in theory, you know, like the journalist might have some like real info. Well, and they'd have powers of observation that no one else would really match. Yes, yes, yes. The IT tech was kind of intriguing, right? Because that's not really something we've had a lot of experience in Gilead with. Well, we we know the the compute. We know the commander has a laptop. So they're, they do use computers still. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's, I, I would imagine just super restricted, you know, like, like very few people have them, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean they don't exist. So eventually they would need to know stuff that very few people have access to. Okay. So then engineer, that's easy for me. Obviously that analytical thinking, the, the building of things, you know, all that stuff makes sense to me. What what do you think the lawyer brings to the table? Hmm. Well, lawyers like the laws that they know aren't useful anymore. But the things that they needed to to know to become a lawyer, such as um, the kind of problem solving, that, that critical thinking, yeah, that or yeah, basically those kinds of things that anal- analytical thinking, the kinds of talents that lawyers have, would be an asset to to their group. And hopefully even I would say that uh, that looking for that influencing people or being able to construe a series of events in a certain way, hopefully, you know, those types of things would maybe have more of an impact um, if it was coming from somebody who was trained to do that, you know, as opposed to June just sort of pressing her face towards him, you know, like maybe there's somebody who could actually be what he was sort of asking June, like, are you, um, are you an influencer of people? Are you somebody who can sort of manipulate a point of view? I feel like, okay, like a lawyer probably can, you know? Yeah. Okay. So she decides she is absolutely not going to choose five people. I think that the Nick visit and the Serena visit are the two pieces of the pie that change her decision to go ahead and choose these five people. What did you think about that Nick visit? informative because we got to know where nick was um that he that the fact that he's wearing a, a regular necktie now means he's been promoted somehow oh my god what kind of necktie was he wearing before uh, was he wearing a necktie i don't know you brought it up huh okay it, it, he definitely had like a little uniform change okay yeah and so more of a suit less of a uniform yeah exactly so she said he was a commander, but he's the kind of commander that can be deployed, whatever that is. What did you think about the way that they interacted? Like she, you know, really peppering him with all these questions like, what, go get Hannah, get me out of here. What can you do? Blah, blah, blah. What did you think about that? It was only afterwards that I really figured it out. It, and it has to do with the change that we're talking about here. Because the beginning of the episode, like Caroline was mentioning, the, the voiceover narration basically stated that that women in this world were stuck in this observational role that that had only to do with self-preservation and scurrying around to make their men at least accept that they were there, if, if not even happy that they were there, right? Yeah. And w- these questions that she asks Nick, I think, amount to, this guy is the, is the only guy in this, in this whole area that even likes me, and he can't do a thing for me. Or refuses to. And I found that part interesting because he was like, I am not going to do anything about any of those things. Because the reality is, is like, does he have the clearance to go walk over to the McKenzie's house? I bet he does. I bet he does. But he's like all done with all of that. And we understand why he told her, like, I'm not going to keep doing this stuff. You know, like there's finite amount of help I can offer and you run the end of it, you know? 
But I did think that Lawrence's words and the way that he chalked her up to being so transactional was the word he used. Wow. Did this interaction with Nick just like ooze of that, you know, like just what are you going to give me? You know, like it was super transactional. But I was really happy to see that once Nick left, that first of all, he did just stick around and she did stick her hand out and was like, sort of like, come back in here. Now we all know that that means they were going to have sex, but I would also like to think that there was some part of her heart that was like, he's a human and he came to say goodbye. And this wasn't just a transaction. You had something important with him. Don't be like that, you know? And so I would like to think that it wasn't about having sex with him, that it was more about sort of like her heart softening up and being like, wait a minute, you know, this is a person who's probably going to go to his death. You know, I, I don't have to be like that. So that was a huge first step to like changing her mind. A first step. Right. All right. Let's talk about Serena's visit. The first thing that, that stuck out to me about that meeting was the idea that these two women in a way that June, I don't know if June was saying it to comfort Serena or if she really believed it, but I think it amounts to the same thing is that these two women share a daughter Mm -hmm. and that they're not the only women out there in the world with this relationship. And in fact, that kind of thing could bind them all. Right. I like that. In a, in a unique, um, society almost right that 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 we can't really quite appreciate here because there's there's nothing so obscene here that 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 works that way but these i mean how she said she probably gets that from from you right Mm -hmm. they didn't really spend enough time together for that to be totally legit but if they right like her raising her little hand i mean she was an infant if, if they had then then that would have been true. That would have been both nature, and nature nurture. mom and nurture mom yeah. all contributing for to one one kid and they all and they want the best for it. So that was the first thing that they that they actually do share a daughter and that is a bond that can actually work for all all three of them. Mm-hmm. I like that very much. And I think that that it does exist in real life now. I think that uh, I just watched another show, Dead to Me, and they use one line in there where they say we could be a mothering team and they cheer with delight at the prospect of being a mothering team. Well, I mean, I mean, the bond that would form no, I understand. outside you're, the house. No, I understand. You're, you're saying it in a very like truly they, they are raising a child like truly you're right. But what I'm saying is that it goes back to that whole it takes a village, though, like we're all you know, in, in other countries and in other cultures, besides just like white Anglo-Saxon calling each other aunties or calling each other moms or calling each other grandmas when they're not actually even related or sister is very common. You know, that is, that's very common because there's this like whole feeling of like, it takes a village and like, we're all intertwined and we are like, ultimately we're all relying on each other. So I appreciated very much that she pointed all this out. I love it that you're hundred percent right within this very tiny 
relationship of like three people, they do have an extremely specific bond, you know, but you're right. You could extrapolate that out and say like, well, so does Mrs. McKenzie and Hannah and June. And so then, you know, you could, you could keep going like that and keep having these like Venn diagrams of like where women overlap other women. Yeah. And it's like, look, no, we're all, we are all like chain link fence together. A if, molecule of. Yes. And <laughs> of like, women. if we would actually have a common purpose and move in force together look at how what we could do and that is what she i felt like her pep talk to serena of like the maybe we're stronger than we think because each of them are only looking at each other as like one individual link but if you think of it as that like chain link fence or that like how tight or a molecule you know how tight that bond can be then what a force they could really be so i think between feeling like if she could get other links in that chain by choosing the five women and having that conversation with Nick and realizing like, there's no more relying on any man, you know, like this, like at some point they're all going to come to an, an end of being able to help you. Cause they don't share these bonds in the same way. Yeah. Then she had to, you know, make this final ultimate conclusion, which is the whole outro to the whole thing. And, 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 uh, Tying back to to Serena's scene, this is this is the chat that set Serena free. Uh, you know, it was a different realization, but it it amounted to just that what she thought before that's never going to work, and she's got to move forward with a new plan. And that's that's where June landed. Also, here she moved from I can't I can't pick five survivors to I'm going to pick the exact five right survivors yeah i'm gonna pick the five leaders that yeah. need to get the rest of us all out basically so here's the other thing that i want to throw out there that i think was is an important part that you said coming full circle back to serena at the very beginning and having her mom be basically like you have no identity without fred i felt like the conversation with june was like you do have an identity you have an identity with me and with nicole and therefore with Hannah and then with Mrs. McKenzie, like we all do have an identity in relation to one another. It doesn't have to be with a man. And like, that's like, what? Because Pamela just told Serena, you have no identity in this world. You have no relationship to this community without Fred. And June just pointed out, yeah, in fact, you fucking do. You know, you're related to all these women in all these different ways. Mm hmm fascinating i feel like that's where you that's where it's like yay because that's what it is that's the fucking key is like you don't have to be in relation to a man but to be a society and to be a culture of women we do have to band together and have a relationship with each other dun 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 nightmare for you men <laughs> really i think that part's stupid in terms of like the nightmare except for just like yeah we're gonna find your weaknesses but p.s can i just like tell you guys we probably already know your weaknesses just kick us in you, the are balls. you hungry do you have to go to the bathroom right. are you tired if we can fix those three things for you most of the time you'll probably zip it maybe that's what went wrong with gilead in the first place they were all just tired and hungry and had to go to the bathroom right. nobody helped right. <laughs> no one helped and <laughs> they needed more fiber oh my god anyway well thank you guys so much for listening i know this was like a late night one for us so hopefully we had some good little gems in there for you 
from here on out, these episodes are going to drop weekly, so you won't be getting a big chunk from us, but we love to hear from you guys. So please give us tons of feedback. Let us know where'd we get it right, where'd we get it wrong, and we want to hear what you guys are predicting coming next. Thanks a lot. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, dailyreview.com, that's D-A-L-E-Y review.com, Facebook or Twitter, or wherever you find us, please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.